Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is that we can come before your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ has split the veil, opened the way, and we have direct access to you because of our relationship uh, to you through his high priestly ministry. Father, we're thankful we can come together uh, to fellowship around the word, to focus on what you have to teach us, help us to understand the implications and the applications of the scripture that we're studying this evening. And we pray that we would be responsive to the challenges that are there to understand your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things I continually run into as a pastor is dealing with the issue of, of application and dealing with the issue of uh, that, that people, especially in our culture, that is such a quick-fix culture, it's a drive-through window culture, that we expect instant gratification on everything, that this is, they try to carry this over into the Christian life, that we have, uh, should just go to church and be given uh, 10 points on how to do this or how to do that, and somehow that's going to straighten everything out. And the desire to, to really know the Word, just to study the Word, even to, for the sake of just knowing the Word, is falling by the wayside because of this kind of cultural in influence that we have. And if you just stop and think about certain things in life, I think of two areas of analogy. One is, is how we eat, and the other is how we exercise. Now, I don't want to say too much about either one because that may be too convicting for some people, but, but if you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with a major health problem, it's too late to redirect your, your nutrition. You've already got the problem. And a lot of people, when they have problems in their life, they just want to go to church and get some kind of quick fix solution. Uh, God, I, I'm going to nod, <clears throat> nod to God and He's going to give me a, uh, a little shot of blessing and I'm going to get past this and then you don't see them anymore. And the issue in, in, in nutrition is to eat well all the time over a period of years and this produces a health, a healthy physical life. It produces, a, uh, it helps lower your cholesterol, your blood pressure, you don't weigh as much, all those different factors that, that come into play. Same thing with exercise. If you have a problem and you wake up in the morning and you have a crick in your neck or your, your back is out and it's not a problem related to uh, something that might need surgery, 
and then you need to fix it, you end up spending how much money going to a chiropractor or going to a massage therapist to try to work on it. Where if and then eventually that gets fixed and and you may do some stretching exercises for a little bit and then that goes by the wayside because you're just too busy. And when you look at at uh, what you should be doing is working out on a regular basis, working out in such a way that it builds uh, muscle, strengthens the core, strengthens all of the your musculature, and you know it's just not a quick fix quick fix solution it takes time to develop that and it takes discipline and then when something happens you you've already provided the framework through either your nutrition or through your your ex- regular exercise to handle whatever the challenges are that 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 come your way studying the words the same thing you don't sit down and say, you know, I've got a problem with my back if you're working out. i got a problem with my back. It's up around my shoulder blade somewhere. So I just need to know what that muscle group is, and I'm going to work that muscle group. You know, that's foolish. You don't do that. You need to, those muscles are connected to other muscles, and those muscles have tiny threads of muscles within and fibers within there. You need to work them all out, and you don't just work out one area or one muscle group. By analogy, that's how a lot of Christians face face their spiritual life. They have a problem. They just want to work out one area. But when you are building your spiritual life, you need to learn a tremendous amount about the Scripture so that you can read the Scripture more knowledgeably for, for one one thing. And because all of this eventually pulls together to help you look at and interpret the realities of life from a divine viewpoint. And it takes time to develop that. And over the course of time, you will study a lot of doctrines that may seem to have no relevance whatsoever to your life or to your thinking. And then five years later, all of a sudden, it the light goes off and you realize this is significant. And so uh, this is why you come to Bible class. I'm just trying to encourage you all are here most every Tuesday and Thursday night. And I just wish more people would uh, recognize this, that you don't just get there by showing up on Sunday morning. In fact, sometimes I want to say, those of you who just show up on Sunday morning, why do you bother? Why do you bother? Why are you playing games with God once a week? If you just ate once a week in your life, you might be thinner, but you certainly would, wouldn't be healthier. And you'd be starving to death the rest of the time. You probably wouldn't even know it. And it's the same way in, in the Christian life. We need to develop that discipline to always be involved and to always be coming and to always be studying the Word because when, as the writer of Proverbs says many times, when the crisis comes, it's too late to fortify your soul. And that applies to memorizing Scripture as well. I often remember reading a book called, I, don't, I forget who it was about now, it was, it was written by a, v, a Vietnam POW called In the Presence of Mine Enemies, and he talked about how he was in the Hanoi Hilton, and how a lot of these men <clears throat> that were captured knew bits and pieces of Scripture. Some knew a lot, but a lot of them, just they just remembered a few promises and a few scripture here and there from their Sunday school classes, they figured out how to tap out a code, and they would get to the point where they could reconstruct 
large passages of Scripture just by tapping it out. But but they had tr- a lot of trouble at first because a lot of them had never memorized any Scripture. They just knew bits and pieces of this and that and the other thing. And and that's a great lesson. We need to fortify our soul by memorizing Scripture. I know some little kids uh, in this church who memorize Scripture. I know some little kids who listen pretty regularly or their parents listen or grandparents listen, and they've memorized a tremendous amount of Scripture. I know some adults here who because of my emphasis on Bible memory over the last five or six years, have memorized several books of Scripture that they've committed. Books like, not not books like Jude. Books like Hebrews, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Memorize the whole book, and they can recite it from chapter 1 to the last chapter and the the last verse. And that is the standard. That's what we should all be be striving for. Okay, we're going to continue our study tonight in in First uh, Peter. So open to First Peter chapter one, and we have covered the introduction, and now we're going into the uh, first part. Last week we did a summary of the first part, and tonight we're going to start with verse three, breaking it down very simply. As we saw in our study of the first couple of verses, it's a it's from Peter the apostle. Uh, identified as the Apostle of Jesus Christ, and he writes it to a group of Jewish background believers. In the early church, there was quite a high percentage of Messianic Jews, what we would call them today, and they lived in the area of Asia Minor, what we call, what was called, sometimes called Asia Minor or modern Turkey, in the area of uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he identifies them as the choice ones, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice the Trinitarian impact there. The foreknowledge or prescience of God the Father by means of the sanctification of God the Holy Spirit for the purpose of obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Then he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And then we go into our opening introduction, which goes from verse 3 down through verse 12. Summarizing it, I said, this is what, what Peter is saying, is that living in light of eternity means we can rejoice in the midst of the present fiery trial because our love for God enables, I didn't correct that from last week, did I? Enables us to focus on the glories to come. Now, right in the middle of that verse, we have the phrase, love for God. That tells us that we have to know something about God. Knowledge of God is at the core of understanding a lot of what Peter says in these verses. We have to know God. You cannot love someone you don't know. And to come to know God both in an academic sense, because we study the Scripture, but that academic sense always leads us into a deeper personal relationship, and this causes us to to praise God for who He is, and we need to learn to focus on identifying uh, the attributes of God, the character of God, and understanding how that relates to his plan and purpose, especially for us. So this is how Peter starts. He's introducing uh, the main things that he's going to cover and re-emphasize throughout this epistle in this opening introduction. Now, if you read through these this section... The first three, the first three verses, verses three, four, and five, 
of this section are all one sentence in the uh, original Greek. And I'm going to read them and then just point out a couple of things as we go from a large, broad perspective to drill down into the verse to understand some of the specifics and the implications of these specifics. So he begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his uh, abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That is a sentence that is loaded with important information. And in order to really understand it, we have to take some time just to sort of break it down and pick it apart. What I've done through the use of a few colors here uh, is to try to bring out some of the different uh, <clears throat> relationships within this this opening uh, sentence. We have the uh, <clears throat> noun here at the beginning that is the subject of this long sentence. This is all one subject. This is our sentence. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our main thought there. The be there in the original is in italics. Some of you will have that in your Bible. You'll see some words that are in italics. That means that it's not, there's, there's no word for that in the original Greek. It just supplied so it makes sense in uh, reading it in English. And I tried to highlight the, in the green there the main thought. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope. That's his main thought. Everything else here feeds into that main thought, and we have to understand what that what that means. And then you have uh, a couple of uh, prepositional phrases that this uh, being born again is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what is the relationship between Jesus Christ's resurrection and our regeneration? How does that connect? What's the significance there? And it's not just a fact of looking back to the reality that you and I were born again at some point earlier in our life when we trusted Christ as our Savior, but it also looks forward in that fourth verse that this is to an inheritance. And then four things are said about that inheritance. It's incorruptible. Second, it's undefiled. Third, it will not fade away. And fourth, it is reserved in heaven for you. We have something reserved in heaven that's got our name on it. There's, a, there's an inheritance package that is set aside in heaven with your name uh, stenciled on it. And then we're told something about the fact that, that we don't have to worry about losing it totally. We're not in terms of a loss of salvation and losing our, uh, our eternal destiny because, verse 5, we're kept by the power of God. This is a great verse for eternal security. Kept by the power of God, how through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
I ran across a video today that was it's kind of interesting. It was uh, a video with Josh McDowell. I don't know how many of y'all know Josh McDowell. I've always had a, a special appreciation for Josh McDowell. I hadn't seen him in a while, and I looked at him, and I went, boy, Josh, you've gotten old, all white-haired and everything. And uh, first time I, I heard of him, I didn't get to hear him, but he was speaking at Stephen F. Austin State University when I was a sophomore, and I didn't uh, know anything about him, but I knew a couple of people who went and heard about it. And he had a had, his whole ministry has primarily been focused on uh, on dealing with the evidences for Christianity. His great book that he wrote years ago is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it was, it was a part one and a part two. And he's modified it and improved it, and they're joined together in one volume now. But if you, I think every high school kid ought to read through those books. And if you never have, then you should. And if somebody who's in college, somebody who's in an environment where there's constantly an intellectual assault on the truth of the gospel and the truth of the Bible, they need to work their way through those those books. When I was a junior in uh, in uh, college, I had, uh, I, although I had spent a lot of time studying the Word and learning a lot of doctrine when I was in junior high and high school, I didn't have a foundation for understanding the veracity of what I believed. Why do you believe what you believe? What is the evidence that it's true? And when you get, and this was many years ago, uh, and it's much, much worse now, you go into the college or university classroom, there are numerous professors who make it their very objective is to identify who the evangelicals are and to see if they can totally destroy their faith within the first six weeks of school. And they are largely successful because we don't send our kids off intellectually prepared to answer these kinds of, of assaults. Now, you always have some kids who just say, well, whatever, I'm not going to think about what he says. I'm just going to move on and put down whatever he says on the test, and that's fine. But if you've got somebody who's really thinking and they're hearing questions that never occurred to them before, then they're going to say, well, how do I know, know that's true? I mean, this is a man who's uh, teaching this class or a woman, and they have their Ph.D., and they're saying things that I've never heard before. How do I know uh, what those answers are? And a lot of times, if, if high school kids and college kids just know that they've heard an answer, and that's one of the things that I held on to when I was, uh, <clears throat> when I was in school, was that I knew that I had heard people address the issues, and I knew there was an answer to these, these things that were being raised in the classroom, so that gave me a measure of stability, but I was still fairly rocked by a lot of things intellectually. How do I really know the Bible's true? How do I know that this things didn't change over the years? And I was uh, up at a weekend camp at Camp Pinal at the end of my junior year, and it was a high school camp, and Randy Price, who was finishing up at UT, had a copy of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and we were talking about these things, and he said, here, you take my copy and read that, and I read it during the next week. I never had uh, intellectual concerns about the Scripture again. It's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous resource. Well, anyway, that's who Josh is. Well, I saw this thing today that was a YouTube video, and he, he stated things rather inflammatorily, 
And he was saying, the biggest heresy in Christianity is that a person is saved by faith. You can't go anywhere if you just have faith. Of course, what he was saying was the Bible, and I think he was overstating it just in order to get people's attention to focus on what the Bible does say, is that the Bible doesn't say we're saved by faith. The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith, which is what we have, the same phraseology we have down here in 1 Peter 1.5. We're saved through faith. Now, this is playing a word game and a little semantic game in English because uh, we use the word by often as a synonym for through in English. So we're still, when we say we're saved by faith, what we're saying in normal uh, usage is that faith is the means by which we're saved, but it's the object, it's Jesus Christ's death on the cross. But a lot of people just, and you'll hear this, maybe you'll be tuned to this now, people just say, oh, you just have to believe. Right. Believe what? It's not that you believe. Everybody can believe. Everybody believes something, and some people believe it very fervently. You have people in the White House who believe what they believe very fervently, but it's not going to get them anywhere close to heaven. You have other people who believe very firmly in their religious convictions. It's not going to get them anywhere. Faith won't get you anywhere. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's got to have the right object in order to be saved. And that's what has to be made clear in evangelism. And that's why I appreciate people like Franklin Graham and others who do make the issue very, very clear. But anyway, this was an interesting little uh, three- or four-minute YouTube video that was uh, that was going around today. And I thought Josh did a great job bringing out that particular uh, particular point. Okay, let's go back and look at, at this just a minute. As we, as we look at this particular passage, we need to start breaking it down, and we're going to just start with the first uh, verse, first part of this sentence in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's interesting to look at this. The first word that we run into here is that word blessed. Now, there's a couple of different words that can be translated blessed. One of them is makarios, and makarios borders on a sense of happiness, but it's not just sort of a personal exhilaration over things going well in life. It's makarios is something that is, is much deeper than that. This, though, is the word eulogetos. And if you like words and you like to trace out the meaning of words, this is the word from which we get our English word eulogy. It is a compound word. The EU at the beginning is a prefix, or if you want to get technical, a morpheme. A morpheme is the smallest uh, letter or combination of letters that convey meaning. For example, an S is a morpheme that indicates plurality. ED is a morpheme that indicates past tense. So there's all kinds of prefix. UN is a, pre is a prefix that indicates a negation. So EU at the beginning of a word indicates something that is good or something that is pleasing. If we feel good and we're in sort of a manic state, we might say that we're euphoric. 
That EU at the beginning comes from Greek, and it means that we feel good. And so that's the idea here. Eulogetas, the EU, means something that is good or well. And the word logetas comes from logos, which means a word. So it is a word of, of good or a word of praise, a word that uh, it means to speak favorably about someone, and it has the idea of praising them. Why it's translated blessed be God is, is a little beyond me because the main idea in a eulogy is to do what? You're going to forget about all the nasty things that that person did in their life, and you're just going to talk about the good things that they did, even if you have to make them up. You're going to give that eulogy and praise them for the things that they did in life. And that's what this means. One of the things we should remember is that creatures can't bless God. Blessing God in the sense of providing something that God doesn't have. But we can praise God. And that's if you read through the Psalms, this used to bother me years ago, is you have numerous statements, blessed be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Blessed be the Lord our God. Over and over again, you have that statement in the Old Testament. But how do we as creatures bless God? You can't do that. But the idea really isn't to bless. The idea is to praise. Now, some of you will find the Hebrew counterpart to this interesting. And that's the word that's in the right panel up uh, up there on the screen. It's the word barak. B-A-R-A-K, and it means to kneel. That's the, that's the core semantic meaning of the word is to kneel, but it, out of a, several hundred uses in the Old Testament, 415 times, it's only used with that meaning three times. It's usually uh, used to indicate the idea of blessing someone 214 times in what's called the PL stem, which intensifies the meaning. It means to bless. It means to praise. It means to salute someone. And in some cases, it's used euphemistically as a curse. So this is the word now. The noun form of this word is, is blessing. Blessing. And the Hebrew is pronounced bracha. B-E-R-A-K-A-H would be the correct spelling because it doesn't have a C-H or a hate in there. It has a cough, which is a K. So those people who spell it B-E-R-A-C-H-A-H have misspelled and mistransliterated the word. Just thought you'd want to know that. And it's pronounced bracha. And it is in, in Hebrew, you go to Israel, you will find that this is a woman's name. In fact, the uh, recent uh, consul general here, Mir Shlomo, uh, is married to a woman whose name is Bracha. And so this just, it's, it's a woman's name, and it means blessing. So in the Hebrew, it means the same thing. It, it means to praise someone, and it has a rich background coming out of the Old Testament. Now, who's Peter writing to? He's writing to Jewish background believers. Paul writes to a lot of Jewish background believers over in uh, Ephesians. He uses the exact same expression there as we have here. He, it's also used in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Now, there were some Jews there in Corinth, not as many. It was more of a, a, uh, a group of uh, 
of uh, Gentiles there. But in both of those passages, 2 Corinthians 1.3 and Ephesians 1.3, we have this same opening statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to me, this is a significant statement. And it's one that we, we need to spend a little time thinking about because it's real easy to just sort of read past this and not catch the significance that, uh, of the thoughts that underline this particular phrase. It, it should be translated, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is significant about the phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Actually, that phrase is used also in a number of other passages in the New Testament. Second Corinthians 11.31, we read the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. Almost the same kind of, of language that we have in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Romans 15.6 says that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify. Very close idea to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we might scratch our heads a little bit and say, well, what's the relationship between God and Father? Where does this idea of the fatherhood of God come from? And what is its source of information? What is it trying uh, trying to emphasize? But before we get there, we have to look a little bit at the Old Testament and see how this is used uh, in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse uh, 19, we also see this same kind of blessing statement, bracha statement. Uh, Genesis 14, 19, uh, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now the person who is speaking here is, is Melchizedek or Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, otherwise known as Jerusalem. And this is after the event where Abraham has gone north and defeated the the armies of the kings of the east who came in and captured Lot and all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains. And then they hooked around the southern end of the Dead Sea and headed north and somewhere up towards uh, Tel Dan, a place where some of you have been in the northern part of Israel, the ancient Canaanite city was Laish, uh, uh, Abraham had a battle. Now, there's a wonderful uh, archaeological discovery there. I was going to show that. Maybe I'll do that at the end of the class. Uh, there's a wonderful archaeological discovery of the gates to the city of Laish that goes back to the time of Abraham. Think about that. That's about 2100 B.C., so this gate is over 4,000 years old, and it gives some supporting uh, co- evidence or correlation to what is, what is taught in Scripture. So after Abraham defeated that army, he came down to Jerusalem, and he went to, to offer an offering of, the, of a tithe, 10% of the booty, the plunder that he had taken from this, uh, from this uh, uh, foreign army. And he gives this to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek responds by saying, Blessed be Abraham 
of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High. This is the first reference you have to this phrase in the Old Testament. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and and he, that is Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. Now, I want you to think about this verse a minute. The first line uses the word blessed, and it says that this is a verbal statement invoking the invoking the goodness of God upon Abraham. Uh, Melchizedek is the one who is saying this, and so by blessing him, he is making this kind of verbal statement. Now, the other night, I don't know if you were uh, listening or not, we t- dealt with uh, 1 Samuel a little bit, we were talking about uh, Isaac and Jacob, and the fact that, uh, uh, excuse me, Esau and Jacob, and Esau... Uh, sold his birthright for just a bowl of red lentil lentil soup, and there was some deception that went on uh, in the process, and that uh, uh, Jacob had disguised himself as Esau and went in and prepared a meal for his father to get the blessing, and afterwards he couldn't do anything about it because a blessing was a legal thing. And if it was once given, it couldn't be retracted. And it had to do with it, with inheritance. So it involves a verbal statement. And so this statement is focused on Abraham. May, may God bless or bestow his bounty upon Avram. But in verse 20, it changes. He says, blessed be the God most high. What that means, as we've seen so far with our use, look at the word, that that means praise be God most high. Now, we live in an era when a lot of people think that you have praised God when you do what? You say praise God. Praise God in English translates back into Hebrew as hallelujah. Hallel is the word for praise. Hallelujah, that that you there is an imperative form, second person plural imperative form. You all praise, and Yah is the first syllable in Yahweh, so it means praise God. And a lot of people think they've praised God by saying praise God. But what I want to point out as we go through this is uh, that we'll see how God is praised. How is God praised here? Melchizedek says, praise be God most high, and there's content there to the praise. Who has delivered your enemies into his hand? He's specifically describing a situation that God has, uh, God has delivered uh, Abraham and the people from. God has protected them and delivered the enemy into Abram's hand, and, and he has rescued Lot and his family and the other captives. So praising God means to describe what it is that God has done in as specific a language as you can come up with. It's not just a generic statement of of praise God. We'll see this in some other passages. Now, another passage that uh, I want you to look at is in Second Chronicles, uh, or First Chronicles, rather. Let's turn to First Chronicles. This is another one of those sections in your Bible that, where the pages probably aren't very, very well turned. First uh, Chronicles, chapter twenty-nine. First Chronicles, chapter twenty-nine, and we see David using this term. Now, this is a really important passage as a background for understanding what is what what Peter is saying. Peter, Jewish. 
Peter's writing to Jewish background believers, and he's using a phrase that comes out that it, that comes out of the Old Testament and is rich with meaning. And so, at this time, uh, David is. Uh, establishing things for Solomon. David knows he's not going to get to build the temple, but he's setting things up for his son Solomon, who will will build the temple. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, David has written a special psalm to praise God. And in verse 10, we read, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. David praised the Lord. So how does David praise the Lord? Does David just go out and say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah? No, he just look at the content here. I only put the first two, two verses up here to, to focus our attention. And he says, there, and let's, let's retranslate this so we get it correctly. Therefore, David praised Yahweh, praised Yahweh before all the assembly. And David said, praise you, O Lord. That's what he is saying. Praise you, O Lord, God of Israel. And then, see, he's defining who God is. They just say, praise God. Well, which God? Are we talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the God Baal or Asherah? Are we talking about just some generic deity, some civic God that uh, the United States worships, uh, the supreme being or something in some sort of generic, nondescript manner? No, we want to define who this God is to whom we are praying. He is the God of Israel. He is the God who has entered into a special relationship with Israel. This is not an exclusive statement in the sense that God is not the God of all people, but it is exclusive in the sense that God and God alone has entered into a covenant relationship with the Jewish people. So he's praising God because of who he is. He's the God who is specifically focused on Israel. By the way, today is the anniversary of the modern state of Israel, Yahatzmut, their Independence Day, and they're 67 years old today. So this is the nation. This is the Israelite people, and God's choice of the Jewish people did not end because they rejected the Messiah. They are still God's people because that's grounded not in the Mosaic Covenant, but in the Abrahamic Covenant. So blessed are you, the Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Now, what's significant about that verse? This is the first time in the Old Testament that God is described by the term Father. So here we have two terms that we're finding over in First Peter, we're finding the term blessed or praise God and Father. All those, those three terms, blessed, God, and Father, are found here. And he's further defined by his attribute of eternity. He is our Father forever and ever. It is unending. And I think that, that David uses the term Father because he's going back to uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, where God promises that Israel is his, says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn, indicating a special preeminent relationship with Israel. And so David is reminding the people that God has this special relationship with Israel that is eternal. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't end. It is an eternal relationship, whether they're obedient or disobedient. And then in verse 11, he says, Yours, 
O Lord. He is speaking directly to God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. And so he uses five different terms there to describe what he is praising about God. And then he further uh, uh, explains it by saying, For all that is in the heaven and the earth is yours. That's the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is always connected to his, uh, the fact that he is the creator. He is the creator God who made everything. Therefore, he has the right to rule and govern his creation as the creator. All that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. That God is the one who will rule and God is the one who will establish his kingdom. And he says, you are exalted as head over all. That is absolute authority. So this last part all focuses on the authority of God as the father of Israel, his authority over his creation. Now that's important because when we get to our statement in 1 Peter 1, 3, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever the fatherhood of God the Father is emphasized, it has something to do with his sovereign authority to rule over his creation. And even in the Godhead, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal, even in the Godhead, where they are identical in essence, there is still an authority structure. And God the Father is the one who is in the authority of the Godhead, and he delegates authority to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God the Holy Spirit. Now, if we look down and continue to read this, which I encourage you to do, I won't go through the whole section tonight, we see how David continues to develop his praise of God. Verse 13 says, Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Now, that's not just saying... That, that the name, the nomenclature, the, le- the, the, the label that is given to God is what they praise. Name in Hebrew always has to do with the character or essence of someone. So you think through the essence of God, all the different attributes of God. The ten attributes we summarize in the, in the essence box are not limited. There are many other synonyms that are used in the scripture to identify God. So think through that. And he says, but, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. So he's folk, all of this flows out of his, his understanding of the fatherhood of God. And that's what we ought to be thinking through when we come to this opening line in First Peter 1 through. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be God? And what does it mean to be Father, Father God, and what does that in turn relate to the uh, person of the Lord Jesus Christ? We're going to get into all of that. Now, First Chronicles 16.36 is another important passage where, it, again, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So how should we translate that? Praise be the Lord God of Israel. What are they praising him for? From everlasting to everlasting, his eternity, his That's one of his attributes. And all the people said, Amen, which means I believe it, and praised the Lord. And if you go on and read through that passage, you get another idea of what it means to praise God. Another example of this language is in Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. 
Notice how similar that is to 1 Chronicles 16.36. Psalm 41.13, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Notice the similarity in the language, focusing on the attributes of God. Now, one thing that has happened with after the New Testament period, as the rabbis, mostly Pharisees, came together uh, in, in Israel, they began to solidify Pharisaical theology by at the Council of of what's called the Council of Yamnia or Jamnia, J A M N I A, often pronounced there's no J in Hebrew, it's a Yud, which is pronounced like a Y. And so it should be pronounced the Council of, of Yamnia. But over the period, the next two or three centuries, uh, Judaism uh, sort of solidified, rabbinic Judaism solidified a lot of their their rituals and their prayers, and they refer to blessing prayers as one particular category called an Amidah. And if you've ever been to a synagogue, you will have recited an Amidah in their in their prayer book. And so here's one from one of the uh, uh, one of the prayer books. Blessed art thou. Notice how it starts off very similar to what we read in First Peter. The point that I'm making in all of this is that this just doesn't pop out. It doesn't just sound like holy language. A lot of times in Christian circles, when people say bless God or praise God, we think this just just is nice, holy-sounding language. My problem with it is people say it in sort of a mindless manner, and they don't understand the, the rich depth of this content and what it means. These terms should not be used uh, frivolously or in a, a superficial manner. And, and yet that's how we often find it in the, the Ten Commandments. It says that we're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain. And most people wrongly think that means that you don't stay, take the name God and stick it in front of some curse word, or you don't say, you know, you hit your hand with a hammer, you don't shout out Jesus Christ. And it's not a prayer. Uh, many other things like that where the name of God is used as an expletive. That might fit under the category. That is not what the Ten Commandments is talking about. It's talking about don't take the name of God in a frivolous or light manner. Don't treat it disrespectfully. If you're going to stand up in a courtroom and say, I swear on God that I will not do this, then you take that oath extremely seriously. You don't take the name of God in a loose manner. And so uh, we we often hear people say, praise God, and this and that and the other thing, and it's just using the name of God in a loose, frivolous, superficial manner. And I think that's taking the Lord's name in vain. They are using it too loosely, and they don't even think about it. Um, but that's just me. Uh, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. See, this is a, uh, a modern Amidah. It's very similar language to what we've been reading in not only the Old Testament, also these, these statements in the New Testament. The great, mighty, and revered God, the most high God, who bestowed loving kindness and possessed all things, who remembers the pious deeds of the patriarchs, and in love will bring a redeemer to their children's children, for their namesake. Isn't that last part interesting? Looking for the Messiah still, not realizing he's already here. Now, the idea of the fatherhood of God is rather limited in the Old Testament. We just looked at one passage in First Chronicles 29, uh, 29.10, 
And here we have two other passages. Now, the second one doesn't count because it's a bad translation. Psalm 89.26, God shall cry to me, you, uh, or he, he that is referring to David, he shall cry to me, God is speaking, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Psalm 89 is a meditation on the Davidic covenant, and God is speaking to, uh, to David and says uh, that David, that is the he, shall cry to me, you are my father. Two verses in the Old Testament that I've been able to identify focus on the fatherhood of God. What I did was I did a proximity search where father and God are used within five words of each other in, in the Old Testament. And many times it's the God of our fathers, the God of our father Abraham. All but these two verses indicate that God is a father. So this isn't a well-developed idea in the Old Testament. Now, Isaiah 9, 6 says that the Messiah, the child who is born, will be called everlasting father. And you've heard me teach on this numerous times that this idiom in the Hebrew should be translated father of eternity, indicating that he is eternal. The child that is born is a child who will be eternal. But when we get into the New Testament, and we get into one of the most significant conflicts. In fact, you might want to turn in your Bible there to John chapter 8, and you get into one of the most significant conflicts uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees in John 8. Uh, look down around verse, uh, verse 37. We might start there. When we get there, we see that, that the Pharisees actually have a concept of God as Father. So this developed apparently during the intertestamental period. In verse 37, John 8, 37, we read uh, Jesus speaking. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So he's really slapping them in the face that you're just, you're just physical descendants, you're not spiritual descendants. He says, I speak what I've seen with my father. Many times in, in John, especially, Jesus refers to God as his Father. I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. Who is their Father? They answered and said to him, Abraham is our Father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. That's in verse 39, verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So obviously the Pharisaical rabbinical theology in the Second Temple period understood God to be their father, probably in that mosaic sense where God said that they were uh, his firstborn. And then, of course, he goes on and tells them in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus never heard of how to win friends and influence people. John 5.18, which comes before the event I just talked about, says that the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, that relates, remember this verse, in terms of what we've been studying in John 12, starting last Sunday, Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So by Jesus claiming that God is his father, they understood that he was making a, a, a claim to deity and B, a claim to be equal to God. 
Now, that's important because when we look at the term son of God, you can't talk about the fatherhood of God without talking about the sonship of Christ. When we talk about the term son of God, in this is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean God is his daddy in the sense of somehow uh, generating him or, or giving birth to him. There's a heresy that in the early church was called Arianism. In the modern church, it's called Jehovah's Witness. They believe there was a time before creation when Jesus began. He's begotten at that time. He's not eternal. Uh, but Jesus is the, is the eternal Son of God, and the doctrine is the eternal sonship of Jesus. And he has this eternal the term father and son are simply this, terms we use to describe the relationship, the economic or functional relationship between the father and the son, even though they are equal in essence, they have distinct uh, distinct roles. In John 6, 27, in John 6, 27, Jesus said, do, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now that term, Son of Man, emphasizes humanity. Son of God is deity. These terms, Son of something, describe a certain characteristic. So if you're a fool, you'd be called the Son of a fool. If you're a murderer, you'd be called the son of a murderer. If you're a thief, you'd be called the son of a thief because that, that noun, the object of the preposition of, is really describing a char- characteristic. And if, you're, if you are foolish, then when you take that idea of being a, a foolishness, if you're displaying that in your life, you are a son of a fool. If you are a murderer, you are a son of a murderer. You're describing that. So if you're son of God would mean what? That you're God doesn't necessarily doesn't mean the idea of uh, of generation. Uh, the Son of Man also indicates Jesus is fully human. That's what it's saying when Jesus says Son of Man, He is a full human being. So Son of God indicates His hundred percent deity. Son of Man, His hundred percent humanity. Now in John six forty six, Jesus ratcheted things up a little bit, and He said. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, speaking of himself. He has seen the Father. So this intimacy between the Son and the Father, between the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity, excuse me, the first person of the Trinity is clearly emphasized. Then in John eight forty two, which is a verse we just read, where Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. God the Father sent the Son, but he is one with the Son. In John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, the, one of the most interesting verses dealing with the sonship of Christ and the fatherhood of God, the relation between the first and second person of the Trinity, is stated in a passage when Jesus is talking to Mary Magdalene just after the resurrection. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. She just wants to come over and give him a big hug. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. In other words, he's saying, I can't stay here. I've got to go home to the father. But go to my brethren and say to them, this is what he, the message to the disciples is. I'm ascending to my father and your father. 
Okay, what's he saying? He's saying God the Father is not only my Father, but your Father. He's connecting those two relationships that in some ways the relationship of the first person of the Trinity to the second person of the Trinity is is analogous to the relationship of the first person of the Trinity to us as believers. Now, I think that's probably because we're in Christ as church-age believers. And then he says, to my God and your God. So Jesus connects the fatherhood of God to God the Father and the authority of God of God the Father. Now, the last thing I want to touch on tonight before we go a little further is understanding the significance of this particular phrase. This phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a unique, not a unique, but is a distinct grammatical construction in the Greek. There's usually, if you're talking about several things, you would say the ball and the bat and the glove, and you would uh, repeat the article before each noun. But in Greek, in certain types of constructions, when you have an article, the, and then a noun, and then a conjunction, and, and then another noun without repeating the article, that one article at the beginning is tied to both nouns and indicate that there is an identity of those two nouns. And this was discovered by a man by the name, a British uh, scholar, wasn't an academic, but he had studied Greek and he continued to read his New Testament and he had such great powers of observation that he studied and, and formulated this rule and it's named after him, and it's called the Granville-Sharp Rule. And, and many of you have heard of, of, um, of w- William uh, Wilberforce, who was instrumental in ending, the, as a member of parliament, ending the slave trade in the British Empire, in, and it was finally passed, uh, in the, the law was passed in the 1830s, but there was some, some legislation before that that gradually ended uh, the slave trade uh, in, in the British Empire, uh, starting in, I believe it was in the middle of the 18-teens. And Wilberforce and Granville Sharp were close, close friends. But Granville Sharp, though he wasn't a member of Parliament, was instrumental in ending the slave trade, probably more so as a man who had, as a boots-on-the-ground man, so to speak, than William Wilberforce. And uh, you, you never probably heard too much about Granville Sharp, but he was instrumental. He was the individual who founded, even though he never left Britain, he founded the country of Sierra Leone in Africa, which has made the news recently because of uh, outbreaks of uh, Ebola, that he founded Sierra Leone as a refuge for freed African slaves in the in the early uh, 1800s. Well, he formulated this... this um, this particular rule, and he says when the copulative chi, that just means the conjunction and, okay, connects two nouns of the same case, uh, a personal description. What that means is, is they've got to be talking about people, not things, not ideas, but two things. Uh, I mean, two persons, rather. Personal description, respecting office, dignity, affinity, or connection, and attributes, properties, blah, 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 blah. If the article 
ha in Greek, that's translated the, if the article or any, uh, or any of its cases precedes the first of the two nouns, the said nouns or participles, and is not repeated before the second noun or participle, the latter always relates to the same person that is expressed or described by the first noun or participle. So you have this construction that I've stated at the top, very simple, article, noun, and noun. So what we have is an article, then theos for God, conjunction and, and then the word father. God refers to a person. Father refers to a person. So that's, that's the first criteria. The, the, if either noun is impersonal, then that's, that's an exception. It doesn't fit. So both are personal. Neither is plural. God is a singular noun. Father is a singular noun. Now I'm going to tell you something you probably never heard before. The third case is neither can be a proper name. So I may say, well, God's a proper name. No, Yahweh's a proper name. God is a, gen- is a noun. How do you know if the difference between a proper noun and, an, and a common noun? A proper noun doesn't t- have a plural. You don't talk about Texas's. You don't talk about Houston's is. If it, but God, theos, has a plural, theoi, God and gods. So, therefore, it's not a proper noun. So you have God, which is not a proper noun, and Father. So this fits this rule by Granville Sharp. Uh, you look, another famous uh, passage is Ephesians 4.11, God gave pastors and teachers. What's pastors? It's a plural. Doesn't apply to plurals. Teachers. That's why Grand, that's, a lot of people have mistakenly identified that as a Granville Sharp rule. There are a lot of plurals joined in this kind of construction that might fit, but it's not an absolute. It only applies, as Granville Sharp said, it only applies to singular personal nouns. Okay? So that fits it. And this is great because it identifies God and Father is the one individual. So what we've done is we've looked at the first part of this, understanding that when Peter says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying something that is in the stream of doctrine, going all the way back to Melchizedek, saying, blessed be the God of Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 14, and developed all the way through the Old Testament, it is stated in the New Testament it by in numerous passages indicating the identity of the first person of the Trinity as God and also the Father in a unique sense of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in a sense that applies to humans, but is distinctly related to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Jesus said that God is also the fa- his Father and our Father, so there is an analogous aspect to this that is significant. Now, next time I'm going to come back and we're going to look at this in terms of the Trinity because this is a foundational passage and phrase that reinforces not only the Trinity but also the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, a doctrine that continues to come under attack by by many people in our culture today. And we need to be able to say to people, and they, as we'll see when we get to 1 Peter 3.15, we need to give an answer for the hope that is within us. We need to say, why do you believe that Jesus is God? And it's not good enough to say, because the Bible says so. That's true. 
That's great. That's our authority. But that's not the answer. So we'll come back and look at that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon them, to be reminded of how how great and magnificent you are and of the tremendous relationship, the significant relationship between the first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, that you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and how for this we should praise you But as we'll see in this verse, it goes beyond simply praising you in reference to this relationship, but the impact of that relationship on each one of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.